Now let us turn together to the New Testament scripture reading in Revelation chapter 18, merely the first ten verses of the passage. And we are reading this in connection with Psalm 127, for it speaks of the failure of all man's enterprises in this world that have lacked the blessing and the authority of God for their doing. Revelation 18. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteress. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, I and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plague shall overtake her death, mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. And God himself will bless to our understanding this further portion of his own inspired words. Now will you turn back with me in your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament reading in the book of Psalms, Psalm 127. I would ask you to have the passage open in front of you for the preaching of God's word. Now, one of the evident features of our modern world and society, something that is very widespread and almost all-persuasive, all-pervasive, I should say, as a mark of our age, is the spirit of self-sufficiency that is abroad amongst men and women of every class. It's expressed all around us in various kinds of feverish, activity, all of which speaks of a self-confidence. You see it in the battle of politicians, even in this present time, as we are in an election time, vying with one another uh, to come up with the right formulae to provide for the economic ills and the political ills of our present world and society. You see it in the leaders of society, endlessly busy, seeking the formulas for success. You see it in the whole area of modern science with our 
space technology and our space program that has put men on the, on the moon and is now feverishly, feverishly busy in reaching out to the very furthest reaches of space and of the solar system. You see it in the activities of the ordinary men of the street nowadays, confused by much of what is going on around them, yet endlessly busy in looking out for number one, making the most of whatever situation comes to them, and in the hustle and bustle of endless enterprises and worldly interests that focus upon themselves, you see a spirit of self-confidence and self-sufficiency. No matter what the world is coming to, the man in the street says, what matters is that I make the most of every situation that touches my life. And we're living, I think, in a day and an age when this is man's world, when in the words of the philosophers of a decade or so ago, it is an age when man has indeed come of age. Yet, the surprising thing, in one sense, is that in spite of all this activity, there is no fulfillment and no satisfaction and no peace of mind that is coming in all of man's amazing enterprises. Instead, we're faced with the picture today of a sick society. Now, this, beloved in the Lord, is why this morning we are looking at Psalm 127 in the context of living in the Spirit. And this is why we're asking the further question in this series. What is the secret of human achievement in this world? Wherein does the success of my Christian life really lie? And this psalm is one of the Fifteen lovely songs of a sense whose corporate and individual theme, you will know, is upon the Lord, the God of his people. The focus of every one of these psalms, and especially this one that we are looking at this morning, is upon the Lord. But it is upon the Lord in the light of the quest for human success and meaning in life. And it powerfully focuses our attention upon the spirit that is all prevalent in the world today, the spirit of self-sufficiency and self-confidence. And I, as I face the message of this psalm, must ask the question, can there really be any successful living here? And it is the theme of the psalm to tell us that there is no success without the Lord. Man's greatest need, beloved, is the need of the Almighty's blessing upon every activity and enterprise in which he engages in this life. And this alone is the secret of human success and human achievement. Oh, may the Holy Spirit then take and apply these things and search our hearts and show us of what spirit we are of as we go through this world and where we really should be in the light of this psalm as it describes for us, first of all, the three most common activities and enterprises in which any of us will ever engage in what I have called 
fruitless efforts to be followed thankfully by fruitful assets. Now look at these things with me, will you, this morning? In verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2, you have what we can call, I think biblically, fruitless efforts. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stands guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late. Now, as I reminded you a moment ago, the message of this psalm is so timely and so appropriate. It is one of the great blessings of handling Scripture, as you will be aware that wherever you touch upon it, there is relevance and there is applicability to where you and I are at this very moment. And the modern obsession is with a formula for successive or successful living. And some find it today in horoscopes and some find it in almanacs and others are turning to astrology. Do you know it's truly amazing in this modern scientific age in which we live how many people scientifically enlightened are turning to the ancient fallacy of astrology and horoscopes and to see whether they're born under the constellation of Libra or Aquarius or whatever it might be that some meaning might come into their otherwise meaningless life. And this age is increasingly putting on the ancient garments of what is called in its new term the New Age religion, which is only the old, ancient, false religions dressed up. And men are giving themselves to lotteries and gamblings and seeking political solutions, while masses of ordinary folk are giving themselves to hard work and earnest endeavor and multiplied activities and enterprises of every kind in order that their efforts might be fruitful. Now it's no new question as I say to you. And you see the beauty of these verses that I've just read to you concerning fruitless efforts is justice. Here is man's basic insecurity from the ancient scriptures made clear to us. In his naked insecurity, he is portrayed before us as in a mirror. And we can look at him. And we can look at him, you notice, in the three most important areas of his whole life. The things that he's doing all the time to find a fruitful meaning in life. Well, what are they? Well, first of all, you notice, they are in the works of man's creating, the beginning of verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. What is the picture here? Well, in a certain sense, it's one in which we are readily familiar today. You go around the streets of Jacksonville, you see buildings being erected, great holes dug in the ground, the bulldozers at work, the backhogs. Everywhere there is confusion, timber lying around, pieces of metal, bricks and mortar, men busy like ants upon the structure. And a process of building is going on. But you see, the picture is really broader than that, as the psalmist sees it. And undoubtedly what he is saying to us is a 
figurative expression for much broader and more expansive activities of man, what I've called man's work of creating. Where he's not just working on a new house or a new home or a new palace, but here is a symbolic figure to cover all the enterprises that are new, that man undertakes. And you remember that from the very beginning, man has always been the builder and the achiever. From the very beginning of time, he was given the mandate from the hand of his creator to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so you find in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, the first cities, the first practice of agriculture is recorded, the first industries spring up in the making of metal weapons and so forth. The arts are developed and the first mention of music is given in the Bible. And so the story goes on and on. Man's endless activity and ingenuity upon the earth, always building, always achieving, endlessly busy under the sun. The very message of the book of Ecclesiastes that we studied down together so well in this very auditorium a year or more ago. Now, what is the psalmist's view of all this? Well, quite simply, that there are two ways, beloved, of doing this. Two ways of approaching all these amazing enterprises of mankind without the Lord's approval and help or else with it. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Without him, says the psalmist, the builders of houses and systems of government and fortunes and empires and even churches are laboring in vain. And do you notice in those verses we read, 1 and 2a, that the triple word vain occurs as though it is the funeral now of every enterprise undertaken without the blessing and approval of Almighty God. And our English versions don't convey to us what is there in the Hebrew. It's not the same word in the Hebrew. Twice it means loss, and once it means vain. So you see, the thought in the psalmist's mind is this, that not only do many of these enterprises undertaken without God's help and approval finally fail. But the question arises in the minds of the builders of them, was it even worthwhile for myself to have done all this? It leaves them with a feeling of emptiness and frustration and confusion. Now you see the scripture is full of all kinds of testimony to this, isn't it? In the book of Genesis, chapter 11, man's great enterprise to build a tower whose top would reach into heaven because of his basic insecurity. He wanted to be God upon the earth. You see it all through the Old Testament in terms of military activity, such as in the book of Second Samuel, chapter 4, that we were studying in the adult Bible class here not so long ago where the Israelites go to war against the Philistines, but God does not approve of his people. They are in the deepest kind of sin. And in 2 Samuel 4, in spite of all their organized military activity, what happens? 
They flee from their enemies in utter decay and chaos, and the very ark of God is captured by Philistine hands. You see it in terms of foreign policy in Isaiah 30, verse 1. Because they have taken counsel, but not from me, says the Lord, all their enterprises shall fail. You see it in the personal plans of ordinary members all through the scriptures, such as in the parable that Jesus told of the rich farmer who said, My goods have increased. I will build bigger barns that I may bestow all my goods there. And God said to him that night, Thou fool, this night thy soul is required of thee. Do you see what I'm saying to you, beloved? Written over all the face of human history is the word vanity, unless the Lord is in the enterprise. Where are the great empires of man's power? Egypt succeeded its domain to Assyria, Assyria to Babylon, Babylon to Persia, Persia to Carthage, Carthage to Rome. And where is all the glory now that once was Rome? In our own day, the infamous Third Reich of Adolf Hitler that was supposed to last for the fabled 1,000 years. Where is it now? Cities, Nineveh, Babylon, which once held the world captive. The hundred gates of Thebes in Egypt. Tyre, Carthage, cities of great renown. Heaps of moldering ruins, most of them. And we can say the same, can we not, even for churches. Ephesus, Laodicea, Constantinople, Alexandria. Once shining pillars of God's truth, amazing beacons of light, now among the have-beens of this world. Because unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. In the words you may recall of Alfred Lord Tennyson, our little systems have their day, they have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. Nothing in man's enterprises can be lastingly fruitful without dependence upon the law. And that is why the great Latin motto from the first verse of this psalm has been taken by Christian families through the ages. Nisi Dominus Frustra. Without the Lord, there is no success. Jehovah's smile of favor, or rather his active approval and involvement in the undertaking is essential if it is to be at all significant and fulfilling. Man's work of creating. But do you notice the second great activity in these opening verses? Man's work of conserving. Verse 1 at the end. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman guards it truly in vain. And it's the second common field of human activity. If we are not busy about some new enterprise, what are we doing? We are busy, beloved, about conserving an old one. So that not only works of creation, but works of conservation come under the psalmist's close scrutiny. We spend our time, so much of it, preserving what we have 
created it. For instance, here in verse 1, the city has been built at tremendous cost in materials and labor. But what happens? It is subject to the enemy's attack. It is vulnerable. And the watchman is at his post. And the psalmist reminds us, unless the Lord is the watchman of that city, the human watchman waits, but in vain. So it is with all human life, you see. Buildings, how much conservation they need. You who are homeowners know that well. Business enterprises, how much conservation they need. Relationships that are built up. How much time we need to spend in keeping them at the level that they should be kept at. The investments that we've made, whether of money or of property. How much attention must go in, in this life, to looking after them. So that the lesson that many, even non-Christian people, come to in this age is the point that the psalmist has reached already for us. We have no power to keep what we have first achieved. Buildings decay. Business ventures fail. Relationships, once warm and fruitful, are abandoned, investments disappear. As Jesus said, lay not treasure up on earth where thief breaks through to steal and moth and rust corrupts. Or it might be more likely in our own age where that hidden and silent thief, inflation, comes in and steals away what we have patiently amassed, silently, without observation. We have no power to keep what we have first created and made, unless the Lord does the keeping. Do you see what I'm saying to you, beloved? It is useless to launch new enterprises unless the Lord is in them. It is useless to preserve old ones unless the Lord is our guardian and watchman with us. And for us, building and keeping secure are his great office for his people. Now the third one, and quickly on this, you notice men's work of providing. In verse 2 at the beginning, in vain, you rise early, you stay up late, toiling for food to eat, says the NIV. It's the third picture. If we are not creating, if we are not conserving, where does our energy go? Into the ministry of providing, does it not? And from dawn to dusk is the picture of the busy man, intent upon his enterprise, toiling in the field, artificially lengthening the day by getting up early and working himself to the bone at night. And what does it all come to, says the psalmist? In vain unless the Lord is in it. And we need to remember that this psalm was written to an agrarian society, a society in which agriculture and farming flourished. And as we know from many parts of Scripture, the farmer lived in constant fear of attack, where his crops may be taken or burned down, from drought, where the heavens above were like brass and the earth beneath like iron, and nothing would survive. Or pestilence, as God often threatened his people with the coming of the locusts to take away all their hard-earned fruits. And the farmer was haunted by fears like this. 
it was indeed a blessing, a far greater blessing than we realize in this modern industrial society for a man to be able to eat of the fruit of his labor rather than to labor in vain. And it was evidence that God loved such a man that he was able to eat and enjoy the fruit of his toilsome labor. But do you notice, it does not depend upon man's toil. We may get up early and go to bed late. We may toil until our bones are sore. But the work of providing is in the hand of God. The outcome lies there, beloved. In the words of Martin Luther upon this psalm, even if you were to till the earth for a hundred years and do all the work in the world, you could not make it bring forth one blade. But while you were asleep, and without your work, God will bring the blade out of the little grain, and he adds many grains according to his will. Creating, conserving, providing, no success without the Lord. The motto by which you must live your life, my friend, is in two words. Is it to be dependence? or independence. There is no third possibility. As you build up your business, as you young people study for your schooling and examination, as another man is laying aside his well-earned gains in investments in this life, as another is thinking of marriage to a young lady or another man. Nisi Dominus if the Lord is not in the enterprise, it will end in frustration and emptiness and vanity. The unseen but all-important factor in this life is that God, beloved, must bless what man does. And that's what makes the fruitless enterprise fruitful. Now do you notice secondly with me in verses 2 from the end to verse 5 that there are now fruitful assets. It's the second message of the psalm. The first part of it, remember, has provided an account of man's elaborate failures. But here is the God-given alternative beginning with the words at the end of verse 2 for he, that is God, grants sleep to those he loves. Now it's a dramatic change of picture, isn't it? And it's the first of two great provisions that the Lord is going to make in this otherwise fruitless situation. The first is he grants sleep to those he loves. Now it's a change of picture and it's a change of pace. It's very dramatic. Nothing is more dramatic than to come from verse 1 and verse 2a into the end of verse 2b from the frantic picture of buildings under construction and cities guarded by endless lines of watchmen to the simplest and most gracious of terms. See, no activity, no noise, silence, quietness, rest. And what the psalmist is telling us, beloved, is that in the place of feverish and self-confident activity, 
God does something for his people that is in marked contrast to all that we've read before. What does he do? Well, our translation is not the best. And what it should really say is that he gives in sleep to those he loves. In other words, God gives what they need even while they are asleep. See, the point at issue here is not who gets sleep. Is it the man who trusts in the Lord? Or is it the man who doesn't trust in the Lord? The man who doesn't trust in the Lord often sleeps more soundly than the man who does because he's safe with carnal security. The question is, rather, how does success come in this world of self-confidence and self-assurance. That's the point at issue. And the answer is God gives success when man's participation is ruled out, so to speak. What are you doing when you're asleep? Nothing. You're resting. You're inactive. And if ever there was a way in Scripture to emphasize the sovereignty of God, the fact that success is a divine gift, not a human accomplishment, it's here in this verse. How frequently Scripture makes it clear. Don't you remember? Great King Solomon, who is credited with the authorship of this psalm, when he was at Gibeon, the Lord came to him in a dream of the night and said to him, I will establish your kingdom and your sons after me. And because you have not asked of me long life or conquest over your enemies or riches and wealth as most would ask, I am going to give you all of these and establish you upon the throne of Israel. And it happened while he slept at Gibeon one night. You see it so often in Scripture, don't you, that when man is inactive, God comes and gives him the blessing that he desires and longs for. Was it not in the midst of the night that Samuel was spoken to by the Lord? Samuel, Samuel, and commissioned for that great prophetic office that influenced all of Israel even after his times? This is the Lord's alternative. This beloved, you see, is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for good to those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, verse 8 and 33. Take no thought. What you shall eat or drink or put on or wherewithal you shall be clothed. For your heavenly Father knows what things you need. Do you see what he's saying? We worry. We become fretful. We are tempted to go into the feverish activity that I've explained and described to you. If only we would recognize it. He pours gifts on his beloved even while they slumber. In other words, those who have put their trust in what it may please God to do have found this to be true again and again and again. Don't you remember what God says in another of these great 
lovely psalms of ascents in Psalm 121. He who, he who watches over you neither slumbers nor sleeps. As though he's saying, you are Israel. Go to sleep. You're safe in my almighty hand. Now do you notice the second thing then that God gives as an alternative to this feverish and self-centered activity in verses 3 through 5? He gives children to those that he loves. Now this is an astonishing thing to find in this psalm. And you might say, well, it's a complete break of thought. Indeed, some of the commentators have said this is not one psalm, but two because the strophes do not interact with one another, and of course they're completely and totally wrong. Sons are given as a heritage from the Lord. Children, says the psalmist, are a reward from him. Is it a sudden transition of thought? No. Because if the first part of the psalm has been largely about men's projects and their building activities, the second part of the psalm now is about God's project and what he is building among his people. There's even a play on the original Hebrew words. In verse 1, the Hebrew word for builder is banim, and the Hebrew word for son in verse 2, in verse uh, 3, is bonim. And clearly, what the psalmist is telling us is God is about his work in our families, building a household, the chief importance of which is the gift of children, and the having of them is dependent upon his divine blessing. You know, as I was thinking of this, I thought back to Genesis 11, the chapter that we've quoted already in this sermon this morning. At the beginning of it, you have man's work, raising the great tower of Babel, whose top was to reach into heaven itself as a challenge to the authority of Almighty God. Men like ants crowding around this massive structure until God, by a direct action, confounded them with the distribution of different languages. But at the end of the chapter, all quiet, all silent, you read that God gives a son to the obscure man Terah. And that son was Abraham, whose blessings have proliferated through all the world ever since. Do you see what I'm saying to you? Man's work. God's work. Behold, sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from him. Now let's look at this ere I close. Why are they so important in this building work that God is doing? Well, notice they're a heritage. Remember the frantic picture again of verses 1 and 2 of unbelieving men busy about their worldly enterprises. Now notice, when God is doing his building work, nothing is said about wealth and money and position and prestige, is it? Why? Because in God's eyes, an upstanding family is wealth and honor enough. In stark contrast to all of man's passing and fading glory, 
And the Lord is saying to us, do you see all this grand activity that's going on in the world around you? All that they're doing, these men of enterprise. Well, I'm also doing something. And it's far grander, in fact, than anything they've ever dreamed of. I'm building too. And what I'm building is godly families among my people. Children who are heritage for me. And what it means is this. But far more successful and far more significant than money and wealth and building is the free gift of God in godly children that he might do a work of building his kingdom in the midst of this age that surpasses anything that has ever risen with bricks and mortar in this world. My dear Christian parent, do you pray for your children that by God's grace they will become the Lord? The Lord's happy are those parents who in the world to come can say, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. That's your attitude toward your family this morning? In their Christian duties, in my experience, many parents are very remiss. There are homes where family worship is conducted without the children present. Where are they? Presumably in places where their souls are in jeopardy. There are parents, though thankfully not in this congregation, who sit in the church pew with their families absent from them. And such neglect must inevitably lead to domestic anxiety and grief of every dimension because the Lord plans that his great work will take place in our families and he will not dishonor the promise. Train up a child in the way that he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. They are a heritage from him. But do you notice, secondly, they are his rewards. And the thought is surely that children are the Lord's recompense for those who fear him. For those who in verses 1 and 2 say in contrast to the unbelieving man, I know, but unless the Lord blesses my endeavors, they shall not be blessed. And his reward for such faith in himself is the gift of children that his work might go on within our families. They are being rewarded in this way. We are so to regard our children as God's reward. Are you tempted sometimes to think as I've been that they're not so much a reward as a liability? Well, as with many other gifts of God, my dear friends, liabilities turn into assets. They're certainly great responsibilities, but those responsibilities become assets and rewards. And Derek Kidner, you may be encouraged in his commentary upon this psalm, says, the greater their promise, the more likely sons will be to be a hand, will be a handful before they become a quiverful. That's worth thinking about. But you see, what the psalmist is telling us is this, that the man is happy who is rewarded by a family 
of godly children. And you notice thirdly, and I'm nearly through, but they are a protection for him. They are arrows. He will not be put to shame, says verse 5, when he's confronted with his enemies in the gate. And you see, the psalmist is telling us here that the protection and blessing for godly parents in the building up of their homes comes from children in whose lives the work of God's grace is being steadily seen. They are like arrows in the hands of a mighty man. Where would the warrior be without his weapons? Where would the mighty man be without his arrows? So is a man, says the psalmist, without godly children. Because the day will come when, being old and weak, he will not be able to protect himself. But those children in those situations when he stands in need of support will not allow him to stand alone. And not only that, they will be protectors of God's truth. It's implied at the end of the psalm rather than stated. What is God about in these families? He's building his own work. Why is he building his own work? Why is he raising up godly sons and daughters that will be the strength of their parents in old age? Because he designs that his kingdom might go on in all the world from generation to generation, that generations yet unborn may praise and magnify the Lord. And that's why it's so important to see that work of building going on in our families. As David Dixon, the Puritan commentator, says, in peace and war, dutiful children will do far more for their parents than others, and for their pastors, and for the magistrate and rulers of that kingdom, for the parents who have such children shall not be ashamed when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Stalwarts for the truth of God. And when that happens, God's work of building, beloved, will finally have come into its own. As I finish this morning, is this your priority in living? The Lord is the focus of this psalm. He has established his order over men in this world. He is the agent of man's success for living. And we should praise him for his power in all of human affairs. We should appeal to him to protect us in all our endeavors that they may be blessed of God as we trust they have originated with him. And while we are given no easy formula for success in this psalm, what is clear is that man is to stretch out his empty hand in faith that the Lord might take him and lead him through the short and uncertain existence that he has here upon the earth. My dear friend, are you there this morning? Is this the spirit 
that governs your daily and your family activities? Is this how you feel this morning as you come to this service? Nisi, dominus, prostrate. Without the Lord, there can never be any success. May God indeed, in his goodness, bless this counsel to our hearts for his name's sake. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you with faith unfeigned for the psalmist's wisdom and insight into all of human life, and we pray that more and more the grace of this psalm may be the characteristics of our lives individually and as families together for the glory of God that his word might go on to be built in deed and in truth amongst us. For his name's sake, amen.